This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise, he did the match. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. Welcome to our annual Halloween show. I think that's the term for something that happens once every seven years. But today is, in fact, All Hallows Eve or Halloween. We will commemorate this in our third segment by re-airing one of our favorite bits from years past, our look back at 1938's landmark War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles. And at some point in our second segment, we are going to continue our discussion of John F. Kennedy, 50 Years On. In this, we will probably be quoting mainly from The Atlantic's special commemorative issue on JFK in his time and ours. In fact, we figure we'll be talking a bit about our 35th president on pretty much every show between now and the 22nd, and maybe even beyond. It's been my privilege to read uh, the galley proofs of Josiah Thompson's new book titled One Second in Dallas, which should be a landmark uh, look at what happened in that tragedy 50 years ago, as well as Jefferson Morley's Our Man in Mexico, the story of Winston Scott was running the uh, CIA's Mexico City Bureau when Lee Harvey Oswald made a very strange visit to, to the Mexican capital just six weeks before the assassination. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date, of course, is October 31st. It was on October 31st in 1888 that Scottish veterinary surgeon, bicyclist, and inventor John Dunlop patents the pneumatic bike tire. But his patent got revoked when it was discovered that the idea had previously been patented in 1845 by fellow Scotsman Robert William Thompson. Thompson's invention had been used only for horse-drawn carriages and had since been forgotten. I think Dunlop got screwed. Listed in 1956 during the Suez Crisis, British and French troops arrived in the Canal Zone to join Israeli troops already on the scene. Their goal? foil Egypt's plan to nationalize the Suez Canal. This little bit of imperialism was apparently thwarted by President Eisenhower, who warned his allies he would not support them in this effort. This may mark the last time that an American president stood up to Israel. On October 31st in 1970, South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Chu claimed that 99.1% of the country had been pacified and that military victory in the Vietnam War was close at hand. This turned out to not be an accurate forecast. And on October 31st in 1992, from the Better Late Than Never file, it was revealed that in Rome, the Vatican finally admitted that Galileo was right. The Earth does, in fact, revolve around the sun. Our quote of the day comes from the writers for Jimmy Kimmel who said last week, Last night was game one of the World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and Boston Red Sox. I'll tell you one thing, those Boston players need to shave. If I want to see a bunch of bearded men battling for a ring, I'll watch The Hobbit. 
And I must say, this correspondent was impressed by the appearance of the Red Sox team. They appear to be made up of equal parts Hatfields, McCoys, and I think werewolves. How looking like the Smith Brothers has become cool, well, I have no explanation. Our quip of the day comes from movie actor George Raft, who was once asked to explain how he managed to squander about $10 million during his career. Said Raft, Part of the loot went for gambling, part for horses, and part for women. The rest... I spent foolishly. All right, our joke of the day was sent to us by Kevin, which is as follows. Mary Clancy goes up to Father O'Grady after Sunday morning service, and she's in tears. He says, what's bothering you, Mary, my dear? He says, oh, Father, I've got terrible news. My husband passed away last night. The priest says, oh, Mary, that's terrible. Tell me, did he have any last requests? She said, that he did, Father. The priest said, well, what did he ask for, Mary? Well, he did say, Mary, put down that damn gun. Our anecdote of the day is as follows. Benjamin Butler, Union General and later Massachusetts governor, was about to administer the oath of allegiance at the end of the Civil War when a Confederate soldier shouted, We gave you hell at Chickamauga, General. Butler, furious, threatened to have the man shot unless he took the oath of allegiance. The rebel reluctantly complied, which point he said, General, I suppose I'm a good Yankee and a citizen of the United States now. I hope so, Butler replied. Well, General, those rebels did give us hell at Chickamauga, didn't they? We don't know if it's true, but we hope so. Our stat of the day is that according to the Pew Research Center, 74% of registered American voters say they would like to see most members of Congress defeated. 38% say they did not want their own representative to be re-elected. And without much further ado, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for making nice in international relations with the news that Iran's new president, Hassan Rouhani, suggested that his country drop its famed Death to America chant in order to improve relations with the West. Said Rouhani, we can stand against powers with prudence rather than with slogans. And it was a bad week last week for, well, is it police brutality or animal control? You make the call. Apparently, a Tennessee police officer lost his job after he fired his gun at a squirrel running loose in a crowded convenience store. Officer Jody Putnam was inside the shop when employees spotted the squirrel. Police say Putnam fired his gun at the rodent but missed and then tried to spray the critter with mace. Said owner Carl Duffield, there was a lot of people that came out of the store coughing. It was comical, but I'm sure the customers didn't feel that way. It was noted that Putnam's overly aggressive attempt to collar the squirrel led to his dismissal. And it was an ugly week last week for life imitating art. In this case, a scene from the movie Idiocracy. Here's the item. The Florida Corrections Department has been forced to tighten its release policy after two convicted murderers used 
forge paperwork to walk out of a maximum security prison. Joseph Jenkins and Charles Walker were released from jail on two separate days in late September and early October after submitting fake documents that reduced their life sentences to 15 years. Authorities didn't even realize the two had been released till they were alerted by a relative of Jenkins' murder victim. Luckily for all of us, the pair was found last week in Panama City and placed in maximum security cells. The week noted that since their escape, at least seven inmates have been found to have used forged documents to try and escape from prison. Florida is offering $10,000 reward for evidence leading to others involved in the forgeries. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week this week for birthdays, with the news that this month marks the 100th anniversary of the modern cigarette. Piece by Robert Proctor in the L.A. Times notes that uh, that it was in October of 1913 that Camel cigarettes debuted in the United States, introducing a new tobacco blend that was both mild enough to be inhaled and sweet from sugars added to the mix. Sold in cleverly packaged boxes of 20, Camels proved to be wildly popular, with 425 million cigarettes sold in 1914 and 6.5 billion two years later. At its peak in 1952, Camel sold a staggering 105 billion cigarettes. Noted Proctor, we know of course today that smoking causes cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and other fatal illnesses. The 4 trillion Camels sold over the last century have killed about 4 million people. It turns out that R.J. Reynolds and his parent company Altria are celebrating Camel's birthday with an ad campaign, at least in Mexico and Europe, where sales remain robust. Well, as somebody once said, I'd walk a mile for a case of emphysema. Let's see if we can do a lightning round of various news items, starting with the fact that some people just can't give it up. They want the Washington Redskins to change their name because it's supposedly racist. Writing about this in the LA Times, Jonah Goldberg said, Since the name is clearly not intentionally pejorative, the real battle here is over... The imperative to scrub society of all offensive language, particularly language that offends liberals. That effort will never end because some people will always need to be offended by something. I would note this correspondent is quite skeptical of this effort because I used to work in Gallup, New Mexico, contracting for Indian Health, and the folks down there who called themselves Indians, not Native Americans, used to wear Cleveland Indian caps and Washington Redskin jackets. I never heard one person say they thought that was offensive. So there you go. One thing I do think is pretty offensive is the fact that Germany has a bishop who apparently spent $42 million renovating his residence. Yes, apparently Franz Peter Tebarts von Elst, known as the Bishop of Bling, has been barred for now from his Limburg diocese. German Catholics were outraged at the bills of the renovation, such as $474,000 for built-in cabinets and $20,000 for a single bathtub. Note the Economist, this bishop last year flew first class to India to look at some do-good projects, but when Der Spiegel confronted him, he insisted he'd flown business class, even signing affidavits to that effect. On October 10th, prosecutors in Hamburg indicted him for perjury. The Economist published a picture of this guy. He looks disturbingly like Joel Gray in Cabaret, which of course allows Mr. Midland to jump in with. Money makes the world go round. 
makes the world go around, so world go around. Money makes the world go around, it makes the world go round. A mark again, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound, a buck or a pound. I love these little musical interludes. And I know Mr. Millen's going to come up with a song for this one, too. The item is as follows. According to Oxford University researchers who surveyed 900 adults about the role of kissing in their relationship, the Oxfordians have concluded that its greatest purpose is not to be sexually arousing. It may be to vet the suitability of a potential mate. The researchers found that kissing was most highly valued by people who rated themselves as attractive and therefore would be picky about their sexual partners. Women in general also tend to place more value on kissing than men do. The survey found that women are far more likely than men to change their judgment of a potential mate after a first kiss. It's so true, so true. The study in Oxford indicated that frequent kissing is a better indicator of a couple's overall happiness than frequent sex. Let it be known, Radio Parallax is in the pro-kissing camp. Now we haven't done a jackass of the week in quite some time, but I think we're just going to have to revive it for this week's show. On the basis of the following item, a Texas hunting group is auctioning off a permit to shoot and kill one of the most endangered animals in the world, a black rhino. The Dallas Safari Club, an international organization of hunters and, and it says, wildlife enthusiasts. Well, I guess they are wildlife enthusiasts, maybe in the same way that Ted Bundy was an enthusiast of college girls said they plan to auction off a permit to hunt an endangered black rhino from the government of the Republic of Namibia. However, and I love this part, the organization says their goal is actually to save the rhino, of which there are approximately 5,055 in the world. Ben Carter, the executive director of the Dallas Safari Club, said in an interview, first and foremost, this is about saving the black rhino. There's biological reason for this hunt. And it's based on a fundamental premise of modern wildlife management. Populations matter, individuals don't. By removing counterproductive individuals from a herd, rhino populations can actually grow. I guess they're basing us on the idea that, you know, young rhinos, like a lot of uh, males of various species, can fight with one another. So I guess these guys in Texas are going to do the rhino population a favor, I guess by taking out a scofflaw example, at least as they tell it. Noted the news coverage of this. Conservation groups said the club's claim that the hunt will actually benefit the species was based on faulty logic. Said Wayne Passell, president of the Humane Society of the U.S., I think if they were multimillionaires and they were serious about helping rhinos, they could give money to help rhinos and not shoot one along the way. The first rule of protecting a rare species is to limit the human-related killing. Passell also said the rhino's size and temperament made it a fairly easy animal to hunt and kill saying, quote, rhinos are enormous lumbering animals who confront predators with their horn and physical mass. Shooting a rhino is about as difficult as shooting a tank. In terms of sportsmanship component, it's totally lacking. 
What shall we compare this to? How about, how about the quote from the Vietnam War? We had to destroy that village to save it. Maybe the idea that this Bay Delta Conservation Plan is going to help the Delta by taking water out of it. Or perhaps something I witnessed myself earlier this week. Democratic Party weasel par excellence Phil Angelides going to the Sacramento Planning Commission and carefully explaining why it was he was about to do East Sacramento this huge favor. I was trying to gauge what was going on in this planning commission because the word in the street in Sacramento is that the fix is in on this deal. I was trying to gauge the reaction of these so-called uh, planning commissioners uh, to what Angelides was saying, and they, they all seemed to have an expression in their face that reminded me of, uh, I guess, the look on my cat's face as I'm opening up a can of nine lives. They all looked like his stooges. And when after the presentation, someone went up to the dais to ask the planning commissioners, would, excuse me, would any of you live in these houses? Given the fact that they're going to be located between a busy rail line and a very busy and oftentimes clogged up freeway, this small basin seems like a singularly bad place to put residential homes. The planning commission sternly reminded this fellow that, you know, all that stuff is going to come out in the environmental impact. We're just here to, like, gauge the construction. In other words, like, you know, what kind of stamped concrete they're going to use, what kind of trees they're going to plant. Now, it seemed to me if that was the context of the conversation, you know, the type of air filtration systems these homes are going to require to not asphyxiate the people living there, seems like that'd be a legitimate uh, topic to discuss. But no, no, they kept admonishing people to please hold their remarks for in the future when there's environmental impact issues. Of course, they allowed Angelides Priest to come up there and start talking about how wonderful this will be to have this, uh, this, this walkable neighborhood right adjacent to East Sacramento. We're going to continue to follow this story because um, the developer, in this case Angelides, found that it's, it's cost prohibitive, in his words, to put new streets that will run into this development. So instead, what he's going to do is punch a hole in the railroad berm and run all the traffic for... 300 and something homes, something like 5,000 car trips a day, right through the neighborhood. So he's not paying the cost of uh, this development. All of us who live in this neighborhood will instead. Although I do have to say, Angelides' evil machinations, which I'm sure, dear listener, no matter where in the country or perhaps around the world you live, you know of situations like this. Powerful developer gets his way unless the public stands up to him and sometimes gets his way even when they do. Anyway, no, the most offensive thing I've seen uh, of regarding Sacramento news stories of late is the fact that you can now take a tour to visit the scene of the Dorothea Puente murders over on F Street. Piece on this by Tilly Fong in the B several weeks back. Describes how there's a bubbling fountain at the front yard of the Queen Anne-style home. And, uh... Meanwhile, one of the docents, I guess, is pointing to a spot where a religious statue had once stood and said, five feet down from the front of that fountain, we found our last victim. In case you're not familiar with the case of Dorothea Puente, she took in boarders, murdered them, and then cashed their welfare checks for quite a while. Perhaps it was Social Security checks, I'm not sure. Anyway, she was cashing their checks when they were dead. Does this strike you as the kind of tour you'd like to go on? And the picture in the B shows a mannequin wearing a red coat and a shovel standing next to the fence to just, I guess, add to the ambiance. Good God. Of course, I think we can top that for a bad legal judgment with this item. 
the Mail Online, talked about how a former defense attorney for Ted Bundy had actually confessed to murdering more than 100 people and that his first victim was a man. This correspondent is eternally grateful that Mr. Bundy was captured for his last murders in Florida, where he was executed. According to Bundy's lawyer, who's now talking about the case, uh, after Bundy escaped from a Colorado prison, he called his lawyer while he was on the lam. Well, not exactly on the lam. He'd been taken into custody in Florida. The cops in Florida did not realize who he was. It's hard to believe they were unaware that they had arrested one of the FBI's most wanted men, but apparently they had. Uh, At this point, Bundy calls up his attorney pretending to be Mr. Rosebud. According to the Mail Online, as his attorney, Mr. Brown would not have been able to reveal Bundy's identity. They quoted him as saying, As a lawyer, I'm not allowed to do that. And he grappled with one of the worst ethical dilemmas of his career, afraid that if police did not recognize their inmate, he would probably kill other people. You know, I had a lawyer once tell me that, that lawyers have a legal obligation to tell the court if they know that their, uh, their client is guilty. Bunny's attorney seemed to have had no doubt whatsoever after hearing his confession, and yet he was torn by the legal ethical dilemma of ratting out his client to the authorities. A serial killer, mass murderer, very likely certain certain to kill again if he was released. Does this seem like a tough call to you, dear listener? All right, we have to end this segment on a little bit higher note, I think. And uh, what's higher and happier than this item? Apparently, foreign cannabis is popular in Asia. Peace in the Sacramento Bee by Chris Brummett noted that potent marijuana grown indoors in Canada and the U.S. is easy to buy in Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. And apparently... um, It sells for 10 times the price of locally grown weed. It's noted in the article that the drug is used mostly by foreigners and well-heeled Vietnamese who are prepared to pay for quality. Vietnamese have long shown preferences for imported goods of all kinds, and it appears that cannabis is no exception. Pretty weird piece. It notes there's no public statistics on cannabis use in Vietnam, but it's a niche product without a long history of use, such as in India. The drug's well-documented use by the American soldiers during the Vietnam War is credited by some for introducing or popularizing it. Who says American entrepreneurs lack the know-how to get ahead in today's competitive markets around the world? All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 